Acts chapter number 11. I'll tell you one thing that I am enjoying. I am enjoying being in church, uh, missing a few uh, Sundays and Wednesdays and being out. Uh, it just uh, really has made me appreciate what God has given us here at Temple Baptist Church. Uh, I, we're, today we're going to be talking about a character in the New Testament by the name of Barnabas, a very obscure, somewhat obscure character. A lot of people don't know anything about him. We, we know the name. We know he's always associated with Paul. But Barnabas was one of these guys that didn't have to have the limelight. Uh, he was one of these guys that made a huge difference, but you didn't really, you really couldn't pinpoint what he did to make such a big difference. He was just faithful and he was supportive and it was more of who he was that made a difference rather than what he did. And I thank God for the Barnabases and the Mrs. Barnabases that uh, I've been around throughout my life in ministry. And I thank God for all of the um, the brother and sister Barnabases that God's given us here at Temple Baptist Church. In Acts chapter number 11, beginning in verse number 19, it says, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phenis and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but the Jews only. If you'll recall, several months ago, we were preaching in Acts chapter number 7. You'll recall how that Stephen was faithfully preaching to the Jews in Jerusalem. He gave them their entire history from Abraham all the way up to the present. And when he got to the invitation time of his sermon, he basically stuck out his finger, at least I'm supposing that maybe he did, and he told him that you're the ones that crucified your Messiah. You blew it big time. And so at that particular time, rather than yielding to the conviction with repentance and remorse and humility, the Jews, the Bible says, they gnashed upon him with their teeth. They were angry and the the, the mob was so incited that they murdered Stephen at that very moment. And that momentum of murdering Stephen kind of started spreading throughout Jerusalem. And the Christians, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem began to be mightily persecuted. And uh, God doesn't give us a record of how many people suffered either death or, or suffered imprisonment or torture, but we do know that it was bad enough that the disciples had to begin to scatter away from Jerusalem. Now, persecution and things like that, none of us have really had to endure any of that in our generation. Uh, we have afforded the great privilege and liberty of being able to worship God the way that uh, our conscience says we want to worship God. But it hasn't always been that way. In fact, it hasn't always been that way in America. You go, go back to the early colony days before uh, before the Bill of Rights and so forth, and there were people who you had one religious church or group that were persecuting another religious group and church. And you know what? In the history of mankind, it seems like that's always been the case. They were scattered because of that persecution. But notice that God took something that was horrible and He brought something good out of it. As they were scattered, they began preaching the Word of God to people that otherwise would have never heard that message of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 20, it says, And some of them, 
were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching, what were they preaching? They were preaching the Lord Jesus. They weren't preaching a denomination. They weren't preaching a creed. They weren't preaching their personal convictions. They were preaching the message that is the message that can change this world, that can change your life, that can change your destiny, and that is the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we read in verse number 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Remember last week how that we saw that repentance and salvation are always connected? It says that they believed and their heart was turned unto the Lord. I don't believe that a prayer or a profession that doesn't turn our heart toward the Lord, I don't believe that it's of any value whatsoever. In fact, an empty profession can be more deceptive than it is a blessing. Because when we truly believe by faith, it's a belief from the heart. It's not just a mental belief. It's not just saying some type of a magical prayer or going through the right motions. It's something that has to happen. Faith is a very personal thing and it has to come from your heart. And if you've ever believed, then you know that your heart turned to the Lord. Then we continue reading in verse number 21. It says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch. Antioch is in modern-day Syria. It would be north of Israel. Verse 23, Who, when he came and had seen the grace of God was glad. He saw what God was doing. He saw people turning away from their sin, away from their idols, turning toward Jesus Christ, believing Him, trusting Him, calling upon Him to save them, and He saw the effect in their life. When He saw that, He was glad. And then He said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help these people out. It says, and He exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord, for he was a good man. He was a good man. I'm going to talk about that here in just a moment. And full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Antioch was a great center of Christianity. There are so many good things that are associated with the early church of Antioch. In church history, we find there are three cities that find prominence. We find Alexander, uh, Alexandria in Egypt. We find Antioch in Syria, and then we find Rome over in Italy. The early church religion, you find these were very prominent uh, cities associated with Christianity, and you find so many differences in how each one of those cities handled the Word of God. You find that in Alexandria, Egypt, 
they had a tendency to subtract from the Word of God, changed what the disciples and early apostles had written to the church. You find in Rome that they had a tendency of adding tradition to what the Word of God said. But in Antioch, where they were first called disciples, we find we find so much manuscript evidence that traces its roots right there into Syria. In fact, I have a King James Version of the Bible right here on this pulpit today. And there is a difference between the manuscripts that were used to translate this Bible into English, and believe it or not, practically every other version of the Bible. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time laboring this point today. Most of you are aware of that, but if you're a guest with us today, let me just simply say that if somebody has told you that all of the versions of the Bible are the same and all of the new ones do is just remove the these and the thous and update the language, let me tell you something. They are lying to you to try to sell you their books. You can check it out. You don't have to take my word for it. You will find that they come from an entirely different set of manuscripts. And listen, two things that are different cannot be the same. When you change words, you end up changing meanings. And so I don't know about you, you can do whatever you want, but I would rather have a Bible that is pure and accurate than to have a Bible that is easy to understand. Let's face it, the English language is not exactly in its best form here in 2019. I mean, there was a time when English was proper and words and the way that words were structured had rich meaning. And here today, it's more like, yo, dude, isn't that awesome? I'm not comfortable with that. You know, I have a, I have a life insurance policy. I have an auto insurance policy. I have a homeowner's insurance policy. And I'm glad, even though I don't understand everything about my insurance documents, I'm glad that they are carefully worded for my protection. I don't think that I would trust my home and my car and my life and my security to an insurance agent that when I came to him and gave him my um, my premium, he said, yo, dude, everything's going to be cool. I want some accuracy in things that are life and death. And listen, listen, ladies and gentlemen, eternity, our eternal destiny, heaven or hell, I want to know beyond any shadow of a doubt that I don't have man's opinion, but I've got the pure, accurate words of God. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And notice in verse 28, And there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which were in Judea. If you recall... We saw earlier on in the book of Acts that all of those Christians in Judea had sold all of their houses and lands and brought the price of the land to the apostles so that they could continue preaching the gospel of Christ. They gave everything that they could in order to get the gospel to a lost and dying world. 
And so all of these disciples knew that. And they said, look, this dirt, this drought, this this hard time, this uh, I guess this would be a major depression worldwide. They said, look, we have lands to grow our gardens and our crops, but we've got some brethren in Judea. They cashed it all out for God. Let's make sure that we do what we can to take care of them. And it says in verse 30, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. I don't know how much money that they had gathered up in order to send to Judea, but I do know one thing, that Barnabas was a part of this. Saul was still uh, happened to earn the trust. There were a lot of disciples that they weren't quite sure what to think about this Saul of Tarsus. He's one of us now, but he used to be one of those persecutors. But Barnabas was with Saul, and there was something about the people. They they had so much respect for Barnabas that they thought, I believe that they thought, hey, if Barnabas trusts him, then I'm going to trust him. But back up there to verse number 24, and notice what the Word of God says about Barnabas. It says, for he was a good man. And I want to talk to you this morning on the marks of a good man. All of these marks, by the way, would be uh, would be just as easily to say about a good woman. A good man, a good woman, a good person. God said of Barnabas that he was a good man. Let's pray. Father, bless our uh, sermon here today. We pray that you would bless us as we speak the Word of God and the truths contained in this passage and uh, with this text, this title. Pray, Father, that you'd use it in our hearts and lives. Help us to be attentive. Help us, Lord, to take to heart what the Word of God says. Thank you, Lord, for the good men and the good women that you put in our lives. And I pray, Father, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be lifted up and glorified and that your will would be done in each and every one of our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The term good man appears 13 times in the Bible. There are only three specific persons that are mentioned in the Bible as being good men. One of them here is Barnabas. The other is a man named Ahimeaz, who was a runner, a runner of deeds. He would be like the postman that we have today. Back in Second uh, Samuel, when King David has had fled from his son Absalom in the civil war and the rebellion and the battles taking place in the woods and all of the people had said to David, look, we don't want you to go out into battle because they don't care if they kill all of us, they just want to kill you. And so David's worrying about the battle, but more than that, he's worrying about his son. And so when the battle's taking place, David didn't know what was going on, and so there were messengers that came running to him. And David said, the runner, the foremost, is the, the running of Ahimeaz. And he bears good tidings because he's a good man. And then we find that Joseph of Arimathea, who begged for the body of Jesus so that he could take care of Jesus' body, the Bible refers to him as being a good man and a just meant that he was he was just he 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 was equal he was balanced he wasn't just uh, all talk but he was a just man he was a good man 
people have different notions about what constitutes a good man or a good woman. My wife and I, just the other day, were talking about a kind of middle-aged, a little bit older couple that were, were in Brother Runyon's church. And uh, the, the gentleman, he was very faithful to everything. He came to prayer meeting. He went out on visitation, never missed a church service. His wife didn't uh, really go to church as much, but everybody just really respected them for being uh, good people. And, and especially, uh, especially his wife, I couldn't quite figure that out. Uh, she was the kind of person, literally, that would give you the shirt off of her back. You know, one of those type of people. I mean, she would do anything in the world for you, but boy, she could cuss like a sailor. And she didn't come to church that often, except for when we had some kind of a promotion where uh, where people... I remember one time Brother Runyon had this... tried to encourage people to pray and read their Bible, and he had this big promotion where you'd get points for, for uh, prayer and Bible reading and had two teams competing against each other. And boy, she reported... I mean, I think she read through the Bible five times a day for two weeks. I'm joking. I'm just... I'm exaggerating, but... It's like she like she blew everybody out of the water. And, and I'm sitting back, I'm just a young man, and I, you know, I'm not not the smartest, but I was born at night, but it wasn't last night. And so I'm kind of like, she ain't doing all that. Because it just didn't seem to be having much effect on her spiritual character. But boy, she reported all of that. And uh, but everybody thought you know she's a good woman. Everybody thought that he was a good man, and um, unfortunately, there were some things in his life that he was doing. And the last uh, ten or twelve, fifteen years of his life, he um, he ended up in prison, and then afterward had to register himself wherever he lived. I think you can figure out the rest of it. It's like this doesn't all add up. Listen, we all have different things that we value that would constitute what makes a person a good man. Now, when you talk about somebody being good, I, I remember there, I've been around some of the brethren that are just way more spiritual than I am. Have you ever had somebody that comes up to you and says, hey, brother, how you doing? I'm, I'm good. Oh, there's none good. No, not one. I mean, they're so spiritual, they put you in your place, you know, and, and, and it's like, okay, you know, and, and, uh, I don't know how to respond to that. I, I understand it's a figure of speech, and I, I like people to take the truth seriously, but some people take themselves a little too seriously. Do you know the crowd was divided regarding their opinion of Jesus? In John chapter 7 and verse number 12, and there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, he is a good man. Others said, nay, but he deceiveth the people. Notice the difference of opinions. You had some people that would say of Christ, he's a good man. But the same man, this other crowd is saying, he's of the devil. He's doing all of this by Beelzebub. Man, he's... He is deceiving and he is horrible and, you know, they value different things, didn't they? Now, I personally like it when my wife says, you're a good man. Both times I liked it. I'm joking, I'm joking. 
you know, but I especially like it when it's not after I've done something stupid and she's just trying to encourage me. <laughs> you know, the, the context sometimes is important. You know, sometimes somebody says, you're, 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 you know, the tone too. You're a good man. Instead of like, hey, I, I'm amazed. You are, you're a good man. And I'm, there's a difference in the context and the tone. But when the context and the tone is right, there's nothing, I know for me personally as a man, nothing humanly speaking that is more valuable to me than somebody that I love, like my wife, who can, who knows me and says, you're a good man, honey. I'm glad I married you. I, sometimes I'll be thinking about my wife and I'll be thinking about her character and her ethics and her diligence and I'll just think, wow, Lord, you get, you sure to give me a good woman. And I'm very thankful for that. These things mean something to us. Now, before we examine Barnabas, I want to examine seven. I mentioned that the term good man appears 13 times in the Bible. Well, we've got three men, Barnabas, Ahimeaz, and Joseph of Arimathea. That gets three out of the way. We've got two other ones that appear twice in the Synoptic Gospels, and then, of course, one about Jesus. That leaves us with seven places in the Bible where the term good man appears. And so I want to quickly just go over these seven before we examine Barnabas just a little bit further. First of all, uh, the things that the Bible teaches that are ascribed to a good man, we find, number one, that a good man follows the Lord. Follows the Lord. Now, Adam walked with the Lord in the garden. We find that Enoch, that he walked with the Lord, and God enjoyed Enoch's fellowship so much that he just called Enoch up to heaven and says, I want you to come and spend the day with me. And there's no night in heaven, by the way, so he's still there. But to walk, to follow the Lord. Psalm 37 verse 23 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. If you are following God, then that means that the direction in your life, the decisions that you make, the things that you do, you are always considering, God, what do you want out of my life? Saul of Tarsus, who was once the persecutor of the church, when he was struck down on the road to Damascus, the first thing that he said is he said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And then when the Lord told him what to do, guess what Saul did? He did it, which made him a follower of the Lord. I wonder how many of you here this morning that you could honestly look in the mirror, you could examine the decisions that you make and the direction that you take, the things that you spend your time on, the things that you spend your money on, and you could honestly look in the mirror and say, you know what, I'm making all of these decisions based on the principles of the Bible. I'm wanting to follow the Lord. Now, sometimes we uh, go through times where we follow closer than others. I can certainly relate to that. But I know that there are other believers that uh, aren't even following too far off. They're just going their own way in their own direction. A good man, according to the Bible, his steps are ordered by the Lord. We have a cliche. We say, take it one day at a time. 
Bible says, take it one step at a time and just follow those steps. You want to end up in the right place, then just follow the right steps. And listen, God will order, He will lead, and He will guide your steps. My father-in-law, Brother Runyon, struggled with diabetes from just in his mid-twenties. By the time that he got into his late fifties and throughout his sixties, the, the bones in his feet began to collapse and he had to wear all kinds of, of custom shoes and orthotics and so forth. And because of that diabetes, he began to get, he, he would frequently get these ulcer type sores on his feet. I don't remember what year it was, but there was a time when he had some sores. Uh, he had a just really bad, one of his feet was in such terrible condition that uh, his doctor has said that there's nothing I'm going to be able to do. I'm going to have to remove it. And of course, you can imagine he was awfully depressed and awfully discouraged by that. And you know that by his own testimony, he said that the Lord gave him this verse the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And he said, Lord, I know that by myself, without you, I'm not good, but I've got Jesus Christ in me, and that's good. And he says, God, if my steps are ordered by you, I just want to turn this over to you. And you know that while all the doctors said that there's no way we can save that foot, do you know that God saved his foot? And uh, I don't know what, he had another 10, 10 years at least of walking around in Egypt and Mexico and Philippines, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and serving the Lord, all because he trusted that, you know what, this isn't my life. I'm not following my own path, but I want to follow God's path. He had open heart surgery and the doctor said that uh, as far as people that had had diabetes as long as he had, the doctor said, I've never done an open heart surgery on someone that's as old as you are. I mean, just amazing. I believe, I believe that God blessed his health and spared his life and spared his feet because he was the kind of man that said, you know what, God, I'm just going to follow your steps and I'm going to keep on serving you. I always said that Brother Runyon would die on the battlefield. And you know what? Up to the very week before God called him home, he was going into the radio station, giving the devotion. He was managing International Baptist Outreach Missions, and he was doing everything that he could possibly do, probably doing more in his declined health than the average man does for God today in a healthy situation. And he just kept on plotting for the Lord. You know what God says about that kind of a man? God says, that's a good man. Number two, a good man is generous and wise. Psalm 112, verse number five says, A good man showeth favor and lendeth. Now, there's favor and then there's lending. Sometimes when we think about lendeth, we automatically think about money. But a good man showeth favor. Do you know that sometimes there are people that don't deserve our care and attention and love and gratitude, but a good man is gracious and shows favor. I think Barnabas was that kind of a person. 
Barnabas wasn't going around scrutinizing everybody. He wasn't going around criticizing and judging everybody. Barnabas was a good man. He was generous and he was wise. And listen, the the good man will also guide his affairs with discretion. He's not foolish. He doesn't just do what feels good. He tries to do what is good and what is right. Number three, a good man seeks God's approval. Last week, we preached a message about Peter and how that Peter had a problem with being a man pleaser. All of us, in one way or another, probably struggle with that. And the problem is, is we think too much. We need man's approval too much. But a good man seeks God's approval. Proverbs 12, verse number 2, A good man obtaineth favor of the Lord, but a man of wicked devices will he condemn. You know, we've got a generation of people that think that God is so gracious and so kind that God will just take any old thing that we offer to Him. God does. God's not that. God is gracious and kind and merciful. But you know what? Somebody that just despises God and doesn't care about God and doesn't love God, uh, there will come a time where God will say, you know what? I'm just going to leave you up to your wicked devices. You're living your life. You think that you don't need me? Well, let's just find out how that works for you when time comes that you do need me. And by the way, that time always comes in life. When we're young, we think, we hear, we read the papers, we hear about somebody who goes through some tragedy, loses a child, or loses their health, or has this problem, or has that problem, and we think, well, I hate that that happened to them. And we don't necessarily come out and say it. Well, that's never going to happen to me. But in our heart of hearts, we kind of live like we think that that's probably not going to happen to us. And then it does. Something comes along in our life that is way, way over our head and is more than we can handle. And we feel like, I need someone. And we look to man and we look to this. Some people look to the government. Some people look all over the place. We find that there's only one source that we can get the help that we need, and that's God Almighty. A good man seeks God's approval. Number four, a good man is mindful of the next generation. You know, there are things that, you know, this this generation of Christianity is way different than our grandparents' generation of Christianity. Wouldn't you agree? If you go into the average church today, it's way, way different than what it was when our grandparents went to church. Now, what's what's interesting is that when our grandparents went to church when they were young, church wasn't that different from when their grandparents went to church, which wasn't that different from when their grandparents went to church. But something's happened in the last 75 years, and it's just this spiral of change and and innovation and new things, incorporating things that our grandparents would say, that's not even good for lost people. People who don't know the Lord shouldn't be doing that stuff. And now we find it in so many churches on the platform. And and, and listen, we got to be wise enough to scratch our head and say, look, something... 
something's missing here. So somebody's missed the boat. And, and, and I, for one, I know that our grandparents' generation, that many of them could be kind of cranky, judgmental Christians. But not all of them. I mean, sometimes the, the one that acted like that way becomes the mascot of a whole generation. And it's not necessarily the way that it was. And I know that there are some things that take it or leave it. There's nothing wrong with it in and of itself. But I know as a pastor and I know as a parent, there's some things that while it may not be that big of a deal, I have to make a decision that, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to allow that, not because it's wicked, but because it takes away, it, 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 it opens up a gate, it takes away a safeguard for the next generation. You know, the Bible says that we shouldn't remove the ancient landmark. The landmark is the property line. Uh, we, the, the second house that we built, was um, uh, Sunny Ridge Road in Nampa, Idaho. Built a really nice house. And we, when we bought it, the property, there was already a split rail fence over on the, I guess it would be the east side of the property. All right, so I assumed that that was the property line. I was fine with that. Well, lo and behold, when the people next door to me when they bought the house, come to find out that the fence was actually three feet, not on their property line, but it was three feet inside of my property line. And so they, let me, let me back up here. No, 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 no. I gotta get my story straight here. I guess it doesn't matter. But my, my wife's always saying, you just, too, too many details. The bottom line is, I had enough. I didn't care about the three feet. It, it really didn't. I wasn't, I'm not farming. I'm not growing crops. That just means three more feet that I've got to mow. All right? But I didn't want this no man's land to where the fence keeps me from taking care of it. But they say, well, it's not my property, so I won't take care of it. So anyhow, we ended up moving the fence, and I got three more feet of property than what I thought that I had. That's not that big of a deal, is it? But you know what? You can move a landmark a few inches today. Everything settles down, not even noticeable. And then the next generation comes along, and what do they do? They move it just a few feet again. And then, might be a hundred years later, somebody comes along, they forget about all of that, and she's like, you know what, I think the property line would be here a little bit better. And as you can see, over a generational period of time, the landmark that's supposed to be the standard, it incrementally just keeps moving a little here and a little there. And that's what's happened in Christianity, a good man is mindful of the next generation. Uh, Proverbs 13, verse 22 says, A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. Not only his children, but also his grandchildren. And the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Now notice it says that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children. 
It doesn't necessarily say he leaves his inheritance to his children's children. I'm going to kind of interject my opinion and my conviction. Do you know that there are people that maybe you worked hard all of your life, you got your, your property all paid off, you've been putting in that 401k and you've been building up your retirement, and uh, you you save that for the rainy day, and then you find out that it's like, wow, I got I got more money here than what I can use in retirement. I know some of you are thinking there are people like that. Yeah, there are. It's rare, but they end up with all of this these assets and these money. Well, when you die, you're going to have to leave it to someone. And I know there are people that think that they are obligated to leave it to their children and their grandchildren. And that's not always the righteous thing to do. Because, let's face it, there are people who have children and grandchildren that are just total losers. You say, that sounds real judgmental. No, it's just reality. And you give them a bunch of money that they didn't have to work for or earn, and guess what? You may just end up ruining them for life. Drugs, alcohol, squandering it. I mean things that you worked hard for, and and you had work ethic, and, and you had discipline, and all of these things, and you end up leaving it to somebody that's just going to I mean, they might as well take that inheritance, light a match to it, and burn it up in the fire because all that's different from doing that and what they're going to do is maybe there's a few months that the fire's going to linger. Leave them an inheritance. Be good to them, but doesn't mean that you have to leave them everything. Listen, you say that sounds kind of... Ju- Listen, God loves us unconditionally. But His blessings are conditional. And that's what the Bible teaches emphatically. You don't have to earn His love and His grace. None of us can earn or deserve His love. He loves all of His children. The ground's level at the foot of the cross. But His blessings are reserved toward his children that follow him. Hey, the prodigal son got an inheritance, but when he squandered it all and was empty, he came back and he had nothing. Everything from that day forward, the son who stayed home continued to gain all of the assets and all of the um, amortization and all of the, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for when your property value goes up? Equity. The son that stayed home continued to develop equity, but the prodigal got an inheritance, but that was all that he got. All right, I got to go quickly. Number five, a good man is independent in his fulfillment. Proverbs 14, 14 says, the backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways and the good man shall be satisfied from himself. What do I mean by a good man is independent in fulfillment? It means that a good man doesn't require outside stimuli or circumstances in order to find satisfaction in his life. He's got God, 
and he's got peace in his heart, and he's got God's presence, and circumstances can come and go, but the good man can lay his head on his pillow at night and say, you know what, it's been a good day, and I'm having a good life, even though the circumstances around him may be swirling down the toilet, if you will. And that's the blessings uh, and the peace of conscience that a good man possesses. Number six, a good man is sadly extinct in times of apostasy. Micah 7, verse number 2 says, The good man is perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among men. Sometimes I, uh, sometimes I echo Micah's uh, assessment. Now, thank God that here at this church, and, and I can't speak for everybody else, but I can look around and I can go, man, there's some, there's some good men and some good women that I've got the privilege to be able to fellowship with and serve God with. But on a national scale, let's face it, the good men, men that stand for right and uncompromising and have both backbone and compassion, where are they on the national scene? It just seems like that they're gone. And it just shows that we are living in a time of apostasy. And then number seven, a good man says and does good things. Jesus said in Matthew twelve thirty five, a good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. You know, sometimes you there are people that just have all kinds of evil things that come out of their life. And they want to look in the mirror and say, well, I'm still a good man. You can't separate those. Listen, what's in our heart is what's going to come out in our life. And at some point, we've got to face the fact that, you know what? I want to be a good man, but I'm not. I need some help. And then as we wind things down here this morning, I want to spend just a few minutes looking at our text at Barnabas, who the Scripture says he was a good man. Barnabas was a good man because he was a trusted man. In verse 22 and verse number 30, we find that he was trusted for his judgment as well as his ethics. The church in Jerusalem, they sent Barnabas to go check out what was going on in Antioch. That means they trusted him for his judgment. And then in verse number 30, when they gathered up all that money and they sent it back to Judea, they trusted him for his ethics. They knew that he wasn't going to dip into the kitty. They knew he wasn't going to skim off the top of the pot. Whatever they gave him, he was going to take that and it was going to go for the use and the purpose that it was given for. Number two, in verse number 23, we find that when Barnabas shows up, that he began to exhort them that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. He was a teacher and an encourager. He taught the right things and he was encouraging people to do the right things. Thank God for the Barnabases in our life. I mean the Barnabases that sometimes exhort us and say, hey, you know what? You're not right here. You need to, you need to change this. You need to fix this. And then the other times where Barnabas shows up and says, you know what? I know you messed up, but I know that you're trying and I know that you're struggling. Hey, we're not all perfect. We all make mistakes. 
hey, just get back up. Because your life doesn't have to be defined by the mistake that you just made. Your life's going to be defined by whether you got back up and got back on track. That's what an encourager and an exhorter does. Number three, we find in verse 24 that Barnabas was a man that was full of the Holy Ghost and faith. He believed God's Word. He put God's Word into practice. Listen, being full of the Holy Ghost does not mean that you go around and have some kind of a mystical religious fit all the time. Being full of the Holy Ghost means that our heart and our life is full of God. Hey, you you know what it's like to be full of yourself, don't you? That means that you're, you're living your life based on what self wants to do. You're full of yourself. But being full of the Holy Ghost means that you've read the Word of God, you've prayed, you have a relationship with God, and as God begins to speak to your heart, you start ordering your life based on the Word of God. There's nothing magical and mystical about being full of God. It just simply means that we remove all of that stuff that's cluttering and getting in the way so that God can move into all those different parts of our life. I think there's a lot of people, if your heart was like some people's house, there's so much clutter that you can't even get around the living room. I had a friend in high school whose grandparents were, this was before the, the, the show, I don't know what channel it was on, about hoarders. How many of you ever seen? All right. I, I had a friend whose grandparents, he, he took me to their house. He had to visit them. He had to do something. And literally, I'm not kidding you folks. You walk into the front door of the house and there was about a two foot wide pathway and there was junk that was almost up to the ceiling. And you're literally going through a maze. There's a little bit cleared out space over here where grandpa's uh, chair is. And there was a little bit of cleared out space where he could see the TV. There was a little bit of a trail going into the kitchen and then one into the bathroom. Everything else was junk and garbage. You couldn't move around. It, it, it was worse than anything I ever saw. I only saw maybe one or two episodes of Hoarders, but this was worse than that. And there are people who are saved that their life is just like that. There's no room for God in their life because there's too much other clutter and junk and garbage. You want to be full of the Holy Ghost? Barnabas said, I'm getting all of the garbage out of my life so that my heart can be full of God. Number four, verse number 25, then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. I've already mentioned it, but Barnabas was a man who saw the best in people. Later on in his life and ministry, we're going to find that Paul and Barnabas, that they took a young man by the name of John Mark with them on the missionary journey. John Mark was young, inexperienced, and as they went on the journey, things didn't go so well. They had some trouble. They had some trial. It wasn't comfortable. John Mark said, you know what, this, is, this isn't what I bargained for. I think I'm going home. Well, Paul was one of these no-nonsense kind of, kind of people. And so the next journey, when John Mark wanted to go along, you know how Paul was. It's like, you ain't going. You ain't learned your lesson yet. 
I, I don't know if Paul totally threw Mark out, but maybe Paul says, you know what, you need to stew about this for a while until you learn your lesson. But Barnabas, the son of consolation, Barnabas, like, hey, Paul, like, he, he's learned his lesson. And we should take him with us. And that contention got so sharp between the two that Paul and Barnabas ended up parting ways because Barnabas was not going to give in to that kind, generous heart that he had. And so he took John Mark and they went on their own missionary journey. Now, that's not good when good men don't see eye to eye, but once again, God took and used it for something good. Now you got two missionary teams. So praise the Lord, God still works something good. Some people, I've heard people preach that Paul was wrong. I've heard people preach that Barnabas was wrong. The reality of it is, is that Barnabas was right, but Paul was in charge. And so they were both right and they were both wrong. One thing I do know, though, is that later on in Paul's life, he's writing a letter and he says... Uh, he says, bring, bring John Mark with you, for he's profitable to me for the ministry. How about that? John Mark would not have been able to prove in himself if somebody didn't believe in him. And that's the kind of man that Barnabas was. Number five, look at verse number 26. It says, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. Barnabas was a faithful church attender. I mean, I appreciate, I appreciate the Christians that every time the doors open, you know that if they can be here, they're going to be here. That's the kind of good man that Barnabas was. He didn't let other things get in the way of serving God. He didn't let sleep. He didn't let recreation. He didn't let selfish agendas get in his way. He had made a commitment that, hey, when it's church time, I'm going to be in church. And you know what? For the most part, that's the kind of men and women that end up being successful servants of the Lord and actually do something for God. In conclusion... This term, good man, is, from our perspective, is relevant to a comparison among other men. When, when we think about somebody being a good man, what we're saying is that they stand out, or a good woman, they stand out above the other men and the other women that were around. It's kind of a peer group or a cultural kind of thing. But, we need to remember that the best of men... Now listen, if you didn't get anything out of the message today, you've got to get what I'm getting ready to, to say. The best of men and the best of women cannot measure up to God's standard. In Luke 18, verse number 19... This rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is God. Now listen, folks, Jesus was not saying that he wasn't good, and he wasn't saying that he wasn't God, because Jesus was good and Jesus was God. 
or I should say is good and is God. He was simply saying that because the rich young ruler who called him good didn't know or perceive that he was God. And so he's making a point that, listen, don't look at men. You just think that I'm a good teacher, a good man in your eyes. There's none good but one, and that is God. Listen to what Psalm 14 and verse number 1 through 3 says. It says, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. Can you imagine how it breaks the heart of God as He's looking for a good man and a good woman, somebody that's seeking Him, looking for another Enoch? They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Ladies and gentlemen, God's assessment of our condition means we're in trouble. We're in big time trouble. And so I leave you with this very important point. How can us bad people become good? I'm glad that you asked. Romans 5 and verse number 7 says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure, or perhaps for a good man, some would even dare to die. I've known some good men that I care deeply about, that I might be willing to take a bullet for them. But I probably wouldn't take a bullet for that bum out there on the street corner that's begging money for booze, would you? I probably wouldn't put my life on the line for that person that is vile and I have no respect for and I don't find any redeeming qualities. But guess how good that our God is. He looks down at all of us and He sees us the same way as that bum on the street, that person who is vile and filthy and disgusting, He looks down at all of us and sees us that way, and it says, But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know about you, but that puts life into its proper perspective. I want to be a good man. I want people to see me as a good man. I want my wife to see me as a good man, but... When all of this is said and done, all that's going to matter is if God can look at us and say, you know what, you measure up to what I'm looking for. The only way that we can measure up is if we have the good man, the Son of God, living inside of our heart. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that we, bad men and bad women, could be made good by the blood of His precious Son, and by the resurrection when He got up from that grave. Thank God for that wonderful gospel message of Jesus Christ that can save us, that can change us, that can clean us up and make us brand new, good men and good women in the sight of God. Paul said, I know that in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. There's nothing good within us except for one possible thing, And that's the Lord Jesus Christ Himself.
Do you have Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? If you don't, you ought to receive Him. You ought to turn to Him today before you leave this place. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, in Jesus' name, we thank you, Lord, for the good man, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, that even while we were yet sinners, Lord, undeserving and unworthy, you went to the cross in order to redeem us so that we could be made good and righteous in your sight. I pray that if there be anyone here today that needs to be saved, I pray that they would come and repent and trust you today. I pray, Father, for believers who perhaps are walking in their own steps. Lord, not following the example of Barnabas, not walking and living according to the principles of Scripture. I pray, God, that you'd help us to make right decisions today so that you could look down. You could maybe say of us, like you did of Barnabas, that, hey, he's a good man or she's a good woman because we're doing the things that please you. I pray that you'd help us here today. In Jesus' name, amen.